Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is understanding the role of immunotherapy in treating cancer. And it's part one of a, two, of a two-part series, actually, on immunotherapy, a promising new approach to treating cancer. And now I know this is a very, very popular topic amongst um, many of you in terms of uh, understanding it and really better understanding. And today's program, we hope you'll leave the program with more understanding of this, this topic and, and actually better questions to ask your healthcare team as well. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have over 446 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, so all different parts of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, France, Germany, India, Ireland, Nepal, Singapore, Sweden, and United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well, and we're really delighted to have all of you on this program today. And this program is supported by the Celgene Corporation, EMD Serrano, Pfizer, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have the best of the best speakers on our program today. I want to be introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is a cutting physician, thoracic oncology service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and professor of medicine, Wild Cornell College of Medicine. And uh, Dr. Uh, Chris is going to present an overview of immunotherapy, harnessing the immune system and treating cancer, and how immunotherapy offers new treatment options. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Well, thank you, Carolyn. And uh, uh, thank you all for joining us uh, on the call today. Uh, the whole uh, idea of uh, using uh, immune therapies is uh, a long uh, a goal uh, for all of us that, that treat persons with cancers. Um, the, the, we know how effective our immune system can be uh, in treating infectious diseases. Uh, and if we could just harness that, you know, unbelievable power of our own bodies to fight the cancer, uh, it's sort of the perfect solution to the, the problem of cancer. Uh, it has been a uh, goal uh, for more uh, than a century now. It's sort of interesting, the, the same person who's felt to be the father of chemotherapy uh, is also, and that's Paul Ehrlich, uh, famous Nobel Prize-winning scientist. He's also the founder of this idea of immunotherapy as well. And uh, everyone has uh, worked hard over the last 100 years to try to develop this concept. Uh, the immune system, uh, despite its uh, importance, uh, is, is very, it's very complicated. Uh, and, and each day, uh, we are learning more and more about it. And as I'll get to shortly, uh, it's through our better understanding of the immune system uh, that we are able to find uh, new therapies uh, for uh, cancers, uh, like the uh, immune checkpoint blockers you hear, you hear so much about. And I'll, I'll get back to them. Uh, you know, in general, the immune system uh, is um, made up of two groups of cells, uh, what they call the B cells and the T cells. The B cells are those uh, immune cells in the body that make antibodies. So if you are, get a measles vaccine, for example, uh, your body will see uh, that uh, proteins from the measles virus and you will make antibodies that will fight those uh, viruses and the proteins uh, that are made by those viruses, so that if you're ever exposed to measles, it, it, it can't uh, it can't happen in your body because you have an you have an immunity to it. Uh, the T cells are, are another group of cells, and these deal uh, in general with other kinds of infections, uh, infections like uh, viral infections, uh, infections like uh, tuberculosis. The the T cell is much more uh, important there. Uh, and it's the T cell that we uh, exploit to 
uh, to fight cancer. So it's so-called cellular immunity, and that's largely mediated through the T cell. And all the breakthroughs that have happened uh, have happened because of that. There are a whole group of drugs and, and approaches uh, of harnessing the immune system uh, to fight cancer. Uh, I think the first were vaccines, and again, the vaccines against uh, diphtheria, against all polio, all kinds of illnesses are uh, just a great example of how to harness our immune system uh, to tackle uh, dreaded diseases. Um, we uh, now have uh, monoclonal antibodies. We have uh, uh, natural substances that can be given as therapies, things like interferon, things like uh, interleukin-2. Uh, and what people are doing now is that they're coupling monoclonal antibodies with um, uh, chemo drugs. So, for example, uh, many of you have heard of a drug called TDM1 or adotrastuzumab imtansine. Uh, it's a monoclonal antibody uh, widely used in breast cancer and, and other cancers. It finds the cancer cell. And once it finds the cancer cell, it brings with it a, a chemotherapy uh, the payload, as they call it, and the chemotherapy is put, in essence, right into the cancer cell and tells the cancer cell and does so without doing serious harm to the rest of the body. So all these kinds of therapies are, are front and center. They're used in a lot of diseases. That adotrastuzumab imtansine is used widely in breast cancer, and those of you, adotrastuzumab, uh, very commonly used in breast cancer and, and gastric cancers as well. So uh, a short time ago, uh, through a uh, in better understanding of how the immune system functions, how the immune system is turned on, and how it's turned off. Uh, people found that there were ways for the cancer cell to co-opt the immune system. Uh, and the way the cancer cell does that is, uh, one of the ways at least, is it knows that there's this substance called PDL1. And if you block the, uh, uh, or activate PDL1, uh, what happens is that the immune system gets turned off. So cancer cells have a way of using the natural uh, way that the immune system is turned off through PDL1. And what scientists have been able to do is to create antibodies that block the ability of the cancer cell to turn off that natural shutdown mechanism in PDL1. And, and that's how these drugs work. So Again, these drugs don't kill the cancer cells themselves. They stop the cancer cell from uh, uh, blocking the effect of the immune system, and then it lets the immune system do its job. There's five of these drugs approved now, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, drivalumab, and avelumab. Now, those of you that are receiving these drugs or are discussing them with your healthcare teams, you know them by all different names, and you have to forgive us. We're all taught... Uh, in our training to use generic names of drugs. I know that's extremely confusing. Uh, you know these drugs as Opdivo, Keytruda, Tencentric, Infinzi, and Bavenzio. Uh, these are the same drugs, and they all work in the same way. And like I said to you, they, they stop the cancer cell from co-opting the natural immune uh, system's uh, turnoff mechanism, turning the immune system back on to attack the cancer cell. Um, for these drugs to work, however, uh, it does require that the cancer cells work in that way. Uh, and that is sort of the um, uh, cancer cells obviously do their dirty work in other ways as well, not mediated through PDL1. And when these drugs are given to those cancer cells that are doing their dirty work in another way, they're, they're, not, they're not particularly effective. So that is the reason why they don't work in every person. Um, however, when, uh, when they do work, the benefits have been, been outstanding. Now, I'm a lung cancer uh, expert, and I'm going to particularly talk about lung cancer. Um, what has happened is that no matter what stage of lung cancer there is, whether you're somebody who's going to be looking to surgery to remove your lung cancer, when you're somebody who's going to be looking to chemotherapy and radiation to potentially cure your lung cancer, or somebody that's going to receive just chemotherapy, there's been clinical trial data, and a lot more of it just came out a week ago, that adding in an immune a checkpoint blocker uh, to the chemotherapy or other therapies uh, tremendously can improve outcome. It can 
uh, improve the time cancer stays away. It can improve the degree of shrinkage that's experienced by the person with the cancer. And it also can, in, in some patients, keep the cancer from coming back as well. Um, one very exciting development, and again, there was a, a paper that came out last week. It was about using uh, uh, immune checkpoint blockade uh, nivolumab before surgery. Uh, the ability to uh, at the time of surgery, find that the cancer had already been killed before the surgeon took it out because of the immune effects. So I think that's very, very exciting work. So how, how do you take advantage of this? Well, I think there's emerging data now that for some cancers, and lung is a good example, there's a role for immune therapy in, in virtually every patient. And it's very patient-specific, and it's very uh, disease extent specific. So you just have to work with your healthcare team to do that. You've got to put your team together. For other cancers, and again, these immune checkpoint drugs have now been approved in melanoma, all the lung cancers, bladder cancer, Hodgkin's disease, squamous cell cancer of the head and neck, renal cell cancer, Merkel cell cancer, gastric cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, and in uh, uh, certain cancers that have something called microsatellite instability. These drugs are effective in those cancers. They're effective in different people. They're effective at different times in their care. And what you've got to do is make sure you discuss, are these drugs right for me where I am in my illness? I can't stress enough about the need to uh, think about using these drugs, but it's very person-specific, and you have to work together with your healthcare team. So it's a great addition to our ability to fight cancer. Uh, it is complicated, uh, and it's a, uh, on the table for, uh, at least for people with lung cancer, uh, at every stage in their illness. But you have to work in your healthcare team to see if it's right for you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really outstanding. Always, of course, and just um, very informative for everybody, and really sets the stage for the entire program today. So thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Michael Pasto. Dr. Pasto is Assistant Attending Physician, Melanoma and, and, and Immunotherapy Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Pasto is going to present the role of clinical trials, clinical trial updates, and how research contributes to treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Pasto. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's my privilege now to talk about how we can try to get access to some of these new and emerging promising immune therapy treatments for treatment of cancer. And I'll speak about clinical trials going forward from what we were hearing Dr. Chris talking about with a really great introduction on how the immune system works and how for many years we've been trying to figure out ways that we can manipulate the immune system to try to help our own bodies fight off cancer better. And when we think about clinical trials and clinical research, I really think we have to give some credit to the many, many decades of all of the patients that have participated in that research to get us to the point where we are today, where we now have so many FDA approvals of a number of these different immune therapy drugs, as we just heard about. And that's really a testament to patients participating in clinical trials, testing new different drugs to see how well they can work. And then as we move forward from a medical research community, really trying to, number one, hope that participating in clinical trials offers a patient a specific type of a treatment that might not otherwise be available. So I always tell patients that number one of importance is we're doing the best thing for that individual patient, but also very important to know that the patients that participate in clinical trials and clinical research are really contributing to the much greater good of advancing medical science. So I'll be speaking a few minutes here about clinical trials, how we think about them, what are the different kinds of clinical trials one could consider, and how do we really get involved as best as we can in terms of trying some of these new approaches if that is what's relevant for us in our cancer treatment as we go through the journey. One thing I would say is there are so many different kinds of clinical trials, and a clinical trial it has been defined in many different ways. And, and one way I like to think about them is it's a way of taking an experimental type of a drug that's not always approved by a regulatory agency in a protected setting that requires close monitoring, doctors and nurses familiar with giving experimental type treatment, and it is always a voluntary choice of a patient to participate in a trial. So if a care team is very excited about a clinical trial option and, and, and there's kind of um, a lot of discussion about something new and exciting, it's very important on a patient end to really make sure that 
you understand the risks of participating in the trial, what the expected benefits are, and what the alternatives are, because many times there are options in clinical trials of different kinds of groups to participate in, and a trial is always an optional type of a treatment modality where patients can opt into participating in a trial. And when patients are considering trials, the treatment care team will discuss a clinical trial through a process called informed consent. And that informed part is really important. So before going into clinical trials, it's really important as a patient or family to really understand what this trial is all about. How could it be potentially helpful? How could it even be potentially harmful? And why now is a clinical trial one of the better options for me before going into a, a trial? Usually patients will sign up for a trial through an informed consent process and then get started with the trial. When patients sign informed consent, they need to go through a process of eligibility assessment. And this requires blood tests, maybe certain kinds of CAT scans or other imaging modalities, EKGs sometimes. It's really important that the study team goes through these tests to make sure that participating in a clinical trial is safe and appropriate. And each type of clinical trial has different criteria for inclusion for testing certain kinds of drugs in certain specific contexts. But the number one thing is we want to assure participant safety with some of these eligibility issues and tests that need to go on. When we think about clinical trials, many times it will come up to decide what phase of a clinical trial is it that I might be considering. And traditionally, clinical trial phases refer to how new a drug is in its development as it's moving through from first time something's being tested in patients to lots of data already available, we just need to see if it's better than the standard treatment. So we usually think of clinical trial phases in three parts, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one trials are often the first time something is given to a patient. Phase one trials are not necessarily only limited to the first time a treatment's given to a patient. It may also include the first time a certain combination is being tested in a patient. So a phase one trial might be an already approved, FDA-approved drug that has been tested in tens and thousands of patients, but this is the first time that that standard drug is now being combined with another drug that technically could be considered a phase one trial because it's a new combination. And many times in phase one trials, the goal is to test different doses of different drugs, either alone or in combination, to see what type of safety signals are experienced by patients, what the side effects might be, and what doses make sense to explore in further trials. As studies move along and patients and drugs go from phase one trials to later stage trials, phase two trials really start to get to more questions about how effective is this drug or this particular combination in treating patients. And then phase three trials traditionally will test a standard approach for a certain type of cancer versus an experimental approach for a certain type of cancer. And many times when people think of this versus concept, it involves a randomization, which means a computer assigns patients randomly, like coin flipping, to which treatment the patient will receive in a randomized trial, which are often phase three trials. Sometimes phase two trials are also randomized. But when patients are randomized by this computer, neither they nor their doctors and care team have a choice in assigning a certain type of a treatment. And so doctors and patients and everyone has to understand that there's what's called equipoise, which means everyone feels comfortable with either treatment assignment that patients might get in a randomized trial because we really don't know yet whether the experimental treatment is better than the standard option and that's the purpose for participating in conducting that type of a trial. These randomized studies are monitored very, very closely by different safety monitoring committees such that if there are important safety signals emerging or really robust efficacy in certain arms, if there's no more equipoise in randomization of, of this computer flipping a coin from different treatment arms is, is not ethically appropriate, then of course the trial would be stopped and the results could be known in, in different situations. So not all trials are randomized. The other thing I would say is that in many clinical trials, but not all, there's a, often a question that comes up about, will I actually be getting a real drug or will I be getting something like a sugar pill or something that's often called a placebo, like a fake injection of some type of treatment? 
The one thing I would say is the vast majority of all clinical trials do not include the placebo-type treatment. Only very few trials will include placebo, and it's very important to recognize in those trials that do include this placebo treatment that there still needs to be clinical equipoise and that doctors and nurses and care teams really need to be certain that that's an appropriate type of a control group. And oftentimes there are now combinations that are being tested. So one group of patients in a randomized study might get two drugs in combination and another group might get two drugs and, and there may or may not be a placebo that can test the difference between is a two-drug combination better than a three-drug combination, for example. So I think the important thing to recognize is this notion of a placebo is most often not pursued in clinical trials, and if it is, usually there's justification for that and an understanding that we really don't know if something is better than something that might be a, of a more standard approach. And so I'll close now with just saying that clinical trials, whether they're phase one, two, or three studies, are often really great opportunities to receive treatment that's not yet FDA-approved that might be something that's incredibly promising or even something that might be in combination with an already existing drug that could really believe to be very important. And whether a trial is important along one's cancer journey is a very individual question and important to talk with your doctors and nursing care team if or when a clinical trial is appropriate for you. And we're very grateful for all of our patients who participate in trials so that we can make the advances in medical science as we have up to this point, and we hope to continue to do so in the future. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pasta. That was really outstanding and really so informative. I think people often wonder about clinical trials, and you've really explained it in such depth. I'm sure there will be questions in addition, but you've really made it much clearer to people than often they understand, and I think um, we do appreciate your being on this call. So. Thank you, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Postel. And our next speaker is um, Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is a clinical professor of medicine, Morris UCSD Cancer Center, VA San Diego Healthcare System. And Dr. Um, Daniels is going to be addressing the emerging role of immunotherapy, examples of immunotherapy in prevention, treatment, and recurrence prevention of cancer and cancer vaccines, and he'll talk about other issues as well. And it's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Carolyn, and those were uh, great presentations leading up to the emerging role of immune therapy, which I'll, I'll, I'll dabble in. And it's alluded to, but I, I want to be a little more specific uh, when I think about the emerging role of immune therapy is, I don't know, where we came from to get to this point and where we think we're going. and. Dr. Chris mentioned um, Dr. Ehrlich, who helped develop chemotherapy you know, many, many decades ago now, which is still in use today, still has a role in cancer therapy, but also introduced the idea of the immune system. And we're rediscovering opportunities that have been threads within med medicine for a long time on how to collaborate um, with multimodalities of therapy, and that would be referring to maybe chemotherapy and immune therapy working together, and I'll get into some other examples. And really the theme of uh, harnessing the immune system has been developing for uh, more than 100 years. Everybody's familiar with Cooley's toxin and the stories behind those early experiments, which showed some pretty miraculous changes in the absence of uh, traditional chemotherapies or radiation. Um, and then Dr. Postel, I agree, gave an outstanding uh, definition of clinical trials, and that's really our avenue of where we're going. And so I encourage people on the question and answer to ask questions about clinical trials, um, how to get involved, and um, is it right for you and your care. So traditionally, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy has provided our backbone for treating cancers, not necessarily preventing cancers, but treating cancers. And um, more recently, we've talked about a fourth modality, and this would be the immune therapy coming into our, our, our toolkit. I, I agree with that idea of a fourth modality, but I, it, to me, it's a little bit broader than that because uh, immune therapy is interacting now with surgery, so we as uh, alluded to, we sometimes use immune therapy before surgery, certainly after surgery. We can work it into our, our radiation approaches. Um, 
and there are interesting clinical trials going on with uh, radiation and immune therapies. And uh, as Dr. Chris alluded to recently, uh, in lung cancer specifically, the combination of uh, chemotherapy with immune therapy. So certainly it is a fourth modality that stands well by itself, but it uh, intertwines with all the other things that we've been doing. And, and part of that is because our, our understanding of cancer as a process has, has continued to improve. I really wouldn't be naive to say that we understand it completely, but our original focus on just the cancer cell and those changes that allow for growth, uh, growth in mortality and uh, uncontrolled growth um, got us so far, but now I guess we have a more complete picture of the biology that takes that cancer cell that may have a particular mutation and what other factors are allowing it to grow in the body. And it turns out that taking this more holistic overview of the cancer is really where the immune system is coming in because both the environment that that cell's in and the, what we call the microenvironment as well as the whole body or the, the patient that's, that has this cancer in them, there are changes that we can measure of the way the body interacts with the cancer that now have become targets of our therapies. So that's kind of the role or overview of immune therapy and how we're thinking about it in cancer care. Some of the specific targets or topics I was given were, you know, how is it helping us with prevention? Well, certainly uh, to give a plug out to our standard prevention strategies, for example, don't smoke. Um, while that sounds like something we just keep beating into people, it turns out that not smoking is an immune therapy. Um, and now that we understand how cancers develop, you have both things that cause mutations, certainly how we thought about tobacco, but also promote growth, and that's chronic inflammation. And so chronic inflammation in our environment, whatever that term really means, is coming in through uh, agents such as um, tobacco, alcohol, other things. So if you can think about ways of preventing cancer is really thinking about chronic inflammation and avoiding those things that harm our body and, and keep that growth-promoting uh, factor going, I think that's a great example of cancer prevention. Another one where immune therapy can be thought of in cancer prevention is, um, for example, in the viral-related cancers like um, HPV-driven cervical cancer or head and neck cancers. Uh, we now have vaccines that prime your body so that you, uh, if you're exposed to these agents later, that they don't set up shop in the body and lead to cancers. So vaccines in some cancers um, seem to be um, available that uh, lower the risk of, of developing a, a cancer later in life. Timing's important, obviously. Um, another group of patients we think about preventing are those that have already had cancer. And so adjuvant therapy has been used in breast cancer patients and colon cancer patients to prevent um, tumor from recurrence, but we also have immune therapies. So once a patient gets a cancer, for example, in melanoma, we've given immune therapies to try to, quote unquote, rev up the immune system. That's uh, maybe, again, a naive concept um, because we're not necessarily revving up it in general, but uh, we've evolved from using interferons um, and now um, other ones that have been mentioned, such as ipilimumab or CTLA-4 blockade and PD-1 blockades as, as ways to change the immune system to keep that microscopic disease from coming back and even curing more people uh, with, um, without cancer that's clinically evident and keep them from ever becoming clinically evident. And then I'll, I'll lastly uh, go into more systemic treatments. So I mentioned that... Um, it's a pillar by itself. Um, I will still give a plug out for chemotherapy, as has been mentioned. Uh, chemotherapy for some cancers is absolutely the way to go. We can cure testicular cancer, for example, with chemotherapy. Uh, so I don't forget about the old stuff, but the new stuff's giving us so many opportunities to, to make changes that we haven't seen before. And melanoma is really the poster child of how immune therapy has evolved. Early on, we knew that the immune system was interacting with the melanoma cells because we had data with interleukin-2, um, but that was difficult to give. It wasn't until 
about uh, six to eight years ago that things really accelerated with the approval of ipilimumab, an outpatient medication that was leading to um, responses that we'd never seen before and ultimately showing us that a, a, a substantial number of patients got treatment and then did not need further treatment for their metastatic disease. And we have patients now out more than a decade without cancer that uh, before the advent of this drug, ipilimumab uh, would not have been alive. And so it's, it's really changed the field and our expectations for cancer management. Um, in the last couple of years with the PD-1 drugs listed off by Dr. Chris and then combinations with other immune therapies, we're continuing to push up that bar where patients are benefiting more and more. Um, put in the plug again for clinical trials because there's still a substantial number of patients where um, we don't uh, affect their cancer in the way we want. Uh, we have opportunities to get rid of the tumor, but uh, there are still a fraction of patients who don't respond to even um, the, the most recent combinations of therapies. And so our challenges right now are trying to identify uh, new, new agents for that group of patients, identifying the patients who need maybe one immune therapy and not the other, so these are biomarker studies, as well as um, toxicity management, which Dr. Pastos and uh, a national expert on in terms of how do we predict and best manage toxicity from these uh, new drugs. And lastly, uh, the, the last challenge that's kind of coming up are what we call survivorship issues, which we may get into, um, and that's because these therapies are complicated. Uh, you need experienced centers, you need physicians that are processing a lot of data and giving the patients a lot of data to absorb. So there's just a lot of um, challenges with managing the information and the expectations from the therapies. So I hope that gave an overview of where immune therapy is integrating in with our, our current care. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really, again, outstanding and just a wonderfully informative to everybody on the call and, and really helping to uh, inform people's expectations and also, um, uh, you know, again, the importance of the participation in clinical trials just to learn more and to help to get more treatment. So that's terrific. And, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker and our final speaker before we take questions is Ms. Sarah Kelly. And Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker and she is Cancer Care's clinical supervisor here. And Ms. Kelly will be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. And it's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, we've been talking today about the role of immunotherapy, really managing your care, and at the end of the day, your quality of life. And I'd like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. So a little about us, we are a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area and then over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in New York, over the phone nationally, and online, both nationally and internationally. We have education programs, like the one that we're on today. We also provide practical help, so assistance navigating the healthcare system, and we do provide um, some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and uh, as I said earlier, they're completely free of charge. An oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, so really how it affects the whole support network. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, so financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and overall psychological impact and care. And adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be an important part of treatment. You know, as you know, cancer affects uh, the whole person and, of course, the whole family, friends, support network. 
asking for help um, by joining a support group or contacting a social worker for counseling can be incredibly helpful and uh, is a sign of strength. I really want to stress to you that you do not have to do this on your own. You don't have to walk the path alone. In joining a support group, connecting with others who are in a similar situation or experiencing similar problems with the individual counseling, you have a space that's just yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And I think the connections help. Um, They help lessen the isolation um, that many people with cancer or their loved ones may be experiencing. And again, you know, feeling well emotionally can help you better manage um, the diagnosis and the treatment. At this time, we are offering a number of support services, including the groups and individual counseling. I encourage you, if you're interested in any of our programs, um, to contact us. You can reach us on our Hope Line, and that's 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673. You can also visit our website, and that's www.cancercare.org. And our website is really comprehensive. You will find information on not only the support services, but actually on all of our programs, as well as your diagnosis and treatment and just uh, different ways of coping as you go through this. We've learned a lot from today's program. It's been amazing. We've got a lot of really good information. But again, it is a lot of information to digest and kind of get your arms around. Just know that we're here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or about our services, don't hesitate to reach out and and let us know. Lastly, um, I really want to stress that you're not alone in this. You do not have to walk the path alone. We're here. Cancer Care Services are here to help you. Thanks so much for the attention and uh, opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kelly. That was really outstanding and, and very informative about the services that people can access from Cancer Care. And we definitely encourage you to take advantage of them along with, your, of course, your healthcare team, all those services from your healthcare team, your oncologists, your physicians, but also to get some of the support that you often need as well. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. And so I'm going to um, ask Crystal to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So, uh, Crystal. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is open. Thank you. Some trials deny acceptance or entry into the trial. If you're in a life-threatening situation, why be denied entry into a clinical trial if there is possibly any hope? And the second question is, what are the side effects of chemotherapy? Are they any better or any worse than the other standard treatments? Well, thank you, Emil. Thank you, thank you, Emil. That was a great question. And um, I'm going to ask Dr. Pasta to address your first question. And um, I think um, perhaps um, Dr. Chris, the second question. So let's start with your first question uh, for Dr. Pasto, clinical trials and acceptance. Yes, thank you very much. This is a very important question and a good one about eligibility for trials. Why have eligibility criteria, which unfortunately can be restrictive in certain circumstances, and if we want more patients on clinical trials, why are, the, why are there eligibility criteria that might be prohibitive for participation in some kinds of contexts? So I, w- I would like to uh, first address this in that the eligibility criteria for clinical trials are constantly being reexamined in that many times there are, and, and I do agree, there are some eligibility criteria in some clinical trials that don't really make a lot of sense. And I think there are a number of professional organizations that are going back and looking through each kind of category of some of these inclusion criteria and reevaluating it and saying, does this really need to be something that's part of the inclusion for this particular patient to go in a clinical trial? And I am hopeful that some of the movement that's happening with these groups that are investigating these criteria lead to subsequent changes. And one thing I talk about with a lot of investigators who are developing trials is I do think it's, it's important to be as flexible with inclusion criteria as we possibly can so that as many patients can go into the trial as absolutely possible. 
sometimes inclusion criteria are the way they are for certain types of studies so that important effects of the drug can be detected in certain more homogeneous patient populations so that if there's a drug that uh, might be hypothesized to cause problems in a certain realm, the study is conducted in a certain group of patients so that we know that we're testing the drug out in a group of people that we could detect an important signal that might be relevant for side effects. That's one reason an inclusion criteria might be present. And the inclusion criteria are hopefully being less restrictive as time goes on. The last thing I'll just add is that there are many times that there are mechanisms outside of clinical trials and lots of discussions in, in the political realm about trying to gain access for investigational drugs to patients outside of formal clinical trials when some patients are facing serious diagnoses, including advanced cancer. There's an important need to try to test new drugs and find more things. And I think there are a number of emerging programs that different pharmaceutical companies are running, single patient use type things, and a lot of discussions in, about kind of how do we get access to more patients for more drugs. And so this is a shifting landscape, and one I'm hopeful will continue to increase access of investigational treatments for patients with cancer. I think we have to keep in mind at the same time the importance of making sure that we do answer the questions in clinical trials we need to so that we can know for broad, broad big patient populations the relative risks and benefits of the drug. If I could add to that, too, um, you know, the Food and Drug Administration has really tried to be very helpful here. Um, when they have drugs in the uh, late stage of the approval process uh, that are likely to be approved in a short time, they uh, encourage the development of what they call an expanded access program, where physicians with uh, very little paperwork can get access to uh, a, a drug uh, for particular patients. I know this is going on now with the drug lorlatinib. It's a drug for people without positive lung cancer. So um, I think everybody uh, that wants to do a, a good job here make promising drugs available, uh, and the FDA is, is trying hard to do that through uh, expanded access is what it's called. Okay. I don't know Thank if you. I can say I can yes. add oh, one thing, yes. too. Oh, please. Um, is that a third line that patients have access to. There may not be a, a drug approved in that particular tumor type, um, but in oncology we use what's called off-label use of medications too, and both, um, you know, depending on what state you're in, these drugs can be paid for or provided by through assistance programs, either through the manufacturer or private foundations. So there are other opportunities for patients too. Thank you. This is wonderful. Thank you for that first question, Anil, and thank you. And um, so it's two questions, actually. And now we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, and I'm going to ask um, Dr. Daniels if you could address this question. So the question is, and you know drugs, um, you know, therapy drugs can have a significant delayed but positive effect on the immune system that can't be monitored by signs and symptoms alone. What are the guidelines for knowing when treatments could safely stop ahead of the normal cycles prescribed, or is there no way to predict? Long question. Do you want, do you want me to repeat it, or is it clear? Um, uh, well, I, I can answer what I think I heard, okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I can clarify it more. But so, yeah, with cytotoxic chemotherapy, it was fairly simple. We gave a dose of medication, and we saw the tumor shrink or or not shrink, and so we could get a readout pretty quickly. But immune therapy has been a challenge, uh, depending on the medication and how we're using it. Um, the onset of benefit can be anywhere from weeks to a few months down the road. And during that time, you'll see changes in the, in the tumor that are worrisome. Either symptoms go up or the tumor is actually larger. And how do you know if that tumor is actually growing and not going to respond or growing because it's inflamed and will respond. So this is a big challenge in the field right now uh, that we're all struggling with. As we get more experience clinically with these drugs, I think we're getting better at giving the medication the right amount of time that it deserves to, to see if it works. Um, but um, it's, it's an area for clinical trials and uh, opportunities for, again, some of these markers of, of response that we need to do. So that's, that's 
what I heard the question is. Awesome. Thank you. Um, we have quite a few actually online questions. Um, so there's another question which I am going to um, uh, direct to um, to Dr. Pastow. Um So this question, I'll, I'll read it. Um, um, for people with autoimmune disorders, such as rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, where the immune system is either overactive or suppressed by medications, would immunotherapy be an effective cancer treatment for this population? If you could address this one, uh, Dr. Pastel. Well, there have been limited information about how effective and safe immune therapy drugs can be for patients with underlying autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis or certain inflammatory bowel conditions. And one of the reasons that's the case is that a lot of the patients with really active autoimmune diseases often were not included in the clinical trials where these drugs were first tested. And so as experience has grown with all these treatments, we've gone back and looked from our clinical experiences and seen how patients with underlying autoimmune diseases do with immune therapy approaches. And the good news from the majority of all these studies is that the patients with underlying autoimmune diseases can have really great responses to some of these drugs, just like people without underlying autoimmune diseases. So from an efficacy standpoint, it doesn't look like there's any significant impairment in the ability to have a good outcome with um, uh, these immune therapy drugs when an autoimmune disease is present. So it can work when there's an underlying autoimmune disease. There is a possibility that the autoimmune disease could get worse in severity when these immune drugs are given. So if someone has an inflammatory bowel condition and you get one of these drugs, there's a possibility that that type of symptom related to the inflammatory bowel condition could worsen with immune therapy. However, in most of the case series that have been studied in this area, the majority of these patients, even if they do have worsening side effects from these drugs, those can be adequately treated with immunosuppression as would be done for other patients without underlying autoimmunity. So when I see patients with an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis or certain other ones, of course, I think about all the treatment options that are available to the patient. If immune therapy is the best treatment option for them, I'm personally comfortable giving them immune therapy, but I do counsel them that they could be at higher risk of a side effect. I give immune therapy because many times cancer is the bigger threat in those situations, and I want to offer the patient the opportunity to benefit but it's important if that's the case for an individual and they have cancer and an autoimmune condition and are about to get immune therapy, that they're taken care of in a place where there's a lot of experience with these drugs or physicians and nurses that are really attentive to a lot of side effects and, and details about management so that the drugs can be given safely. If I could add to that, too, um, you know, again, with, with all treatment decisions, it's balancing the potential benefit versus the potential risk, and, and patients and their healthcare teams need to figure that out. The second thing is when you have a significant uh, autoimmune disease under care, you really need to bring those specialists into the cancer care. So if you have multiple sclerosis, say, and you're under care, by a specialist for that, they need to become part of your cancer team. And as you go forward and if you make the decision to proceed, you want to make sure everybody uh, is on the same page and there can be a very quick uh, plan of action should uh, your underlying autoimmune disease flare. And the beautiful thing about this is that if it does flare, generally there is a treatment for it, corticosteroids and, and other more specific therapies. So, But it's an, it means another member on your team. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And um, our next telephone question, um, Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Thank you so much, Caroline. This has been an excellent seminar, and it's really been good. My question is, uh, first of all, I'm a nurse, social worker, and breast cancer survivor. My question is, though, about prostate cancer for Dr. Daniels. I'd like to know about clinical trials targeted radiation. Is it being done at the VA with immune therapy for the targeted therapy for prostate cancer? And also, why isn't, of course, why is it not being done? And is there clinical trials being done for the immune therapy with the radiation for prostate cancer? And also, is there the vaccines for prostate cancer being used also for targeted? Thank you so much. Thanks, Stephanie, for that question. Um, Dr. Daniels, you just answer that in a general way. And then, of course, Stephanie will sure. encourage you to go back to your treating healthcare team, um, you know, for your to the person you're concerned about, yes. Yeah, so um, prostate cancer, um, very common, number one killer 
um, for men, and uh, it it has been relatively resistant to our current immune therapies. Um, you did mention, though, why hasn't it been done? There was a study um, that I can highlight that um, uh, was with ipilimumab, a CTLA-4 antibody, that looked at the combination of radiation, and in this case, not actually at the prostate uh, tumor in where it was, but uh, where it had spread to. So this was a, a study that looked at bone metastases with a short course of radiation and, and the addition of an immune checkpoint. And unfortunately, that trial did not succeed. Um, and there's also been look at, at studies using these newer uh, PD-1 therapies, and to date, it hasn't been. Prostate cancer, and like all cancers and patients, uh, there's so much diversity in how a cancer develops. Our current immune therapies don't address it all yet. And prostate cancer is one of those few that has responded to what we call primary immune therapy or, or a vaccine-like, and that's Provenge. Provenge has um, some modest activity for patients with prostate cancer. So it's complicated. Uh, we are working on it. And uh, what Dr. Pastel elaborated through clinical trials is absolutely the way to go. Um, so that's prostate cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, and for this question, I'm going to give this question to Dr. Chris, if you could address this question in a general way. Um, although the person is giving very specific information about their situation. Um, I've done chemotherapy 14 rounds, and I'm now on Keytruda. My tumor has shrunk by 50% as of last week. Do I need to do um, any radiation? The radiation oncologist thinks I, sh I, should, I, I do need to, but I am hesitant since I am now tolerating my treatment really well and improving. So, Dr. Chris, if you could address this in a general way, and then, of course, we encourage our online participant to go back to the treating healthcare team who really know their situation, of course, better than any of us do all the details. But nevertheless, in just a general way, if you could address this. So 10 years ago, I would have had a very pat answer to this question, and that is unless the uh, deposit of cancer uh, remaining was symptomatic, uh, I would absolutely not give radiation. And uh, now, though, I would absolutely say radiation is on the table. Um, there are two uh, situations that uh, oncologists have come to understand. One of them is called uh, oligometastases, and there are some cancers by their nature. And again, we don't understand exactly why this happens, but they are only metastatic to a small number of sites. And there is literature throughout many different kinds of cancers that if you direct a therapy toward those few metastatic sites, and it can be up to five, at least in the lung cancer area, that it appears that you can improve uh, outcomes for people, help them live longer and live cancer-free. So while even in the face of metastatic cancer, uh, where we normally don't give radiation unless there's symptoms, in this oligo-metastatic state, uh, we, we have it on the table now. And it's not just radiation. We sometimes do surgery, and we sometimes use ablative procedures like a cryoablation. The other thing that, that has happened is we have this other situation, which we call oligoprogression. Somebody that has cancer in many different places, you receive a targeted therapy, the, the cancer comes under control, but one spot of cancer starts to grow. Uh, we can't really explain why one grows and the rest of them stay controlled, but often one does that. And this we call oligoprogression. What we have learned now is by focusing uh, a, a local therapy to there, be it radiation surgery or an ablative procedure, we then can uh, uh, get the disease under control again, uh, and people can stay on uh, their original targeted therapy, be it an immune treatment or a, a drug, uh, continuously. So. Um, I urge you to put your healthcare team together when you have these situations with one spot of cancer or one spot of cancer growing uh, and, and talk through what are the options for you. Uh, and if you're going to decide to do a local therapy, what's the best local therapy? Is it surgery? Is it radiation or an ablative procedure? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, um, and um, uh, we have another telephone question. I think that's probably our last question, actually. Uh, Crystal? Thank you. And our next question comes from Patty D. Your line is open. Yes. Uh, I have a question regarding clinical trials. If you have had a previous cancer, 
in my case, I uh, 13 years ago was treated with RCHOP for uh, follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and am now receiving Keytruda for uh, an MSI high uh, endometrial cancer that failed uh, platinum therapy. Uh, would I still be eligible to enter a clinical trial, or does the two cancers negate that? Oh, that's an excellent question, and uh, it comes up a lot. Um, Dr. Pascal, could you address that question or start with that, addressing it anyway? Yeah, sh sure. I'm happy to, to deal with this, and, and I'll kind of speak to this in a general way as well, that um, many clinical trials do have specifications within them about other cancers. Fortunately, most say that if the other cancer has been treated many, many years ago and is not really an, an active ongoing mm -hmm. issue, Many times that, that that shouldn't necessarily be um, a limitation for participation in future clinical trials. So I would say each trial is so different in the way that this issue is handled, it's hard to really say across the board. I think the, the bottom line is um, to look at each individual trial and make sure that the specific history of when the other cancer may have occurred and what, if any, ongoing needs there are for ongoing treatment. Those are the those are the major questions about it. And every trial is different. And this is one of those specific areas that I think a lot of cooperative groups, patient advocacy groups, professional organizations and oncologists, and a lot of us as investigators are really trying to reexamine in, in these clinical trials because I think it, it hopefully would be an area that we can have a lot of flexibility as we move forward in, in incorporating these kinds of situations in, into our ongoing trials so that we, we can learn more about this. But Every trial is so specific. I would I would refer to each individual trial. Hopefully, the the time frame in this kind of situation is such that, given the, the longer history of it, 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 in some trials it should be fine. But you have to look at each individual trial. Thank you. That's very helpful. And please go back to your treating healthcare team. And I do have a question for Ms. Kelly because it, it comes up a lot, um, and I think um, it's an issue of just the um, the promise of immunotherapy, which actually is the title of our program today, and. Um, as, as a two-part series, and indeed um, how patients are responding to that in some of the support groups and um, individual counseling in terms of how, how they're feeling about this um, new um, option that they have, but really um, how do they feel about that emotionally and, and socially and practically. Yes, thank you. So it brings up, I think, a lot of uh, different questions and also just a lot of different emotions. So, you know, it's uh, it's exciting. Um, it certainly brings a lot of hope, I think, across the board of um, treatments available and then what might be available in the future, you know, as this research continues. I think one of the things that I hear often is just concerns about whether or not someone um, can have or take an immunotherapy treatment and then this feeling of, you know, well, if not, if, I, if I'm not eligible for this treatment, um, that, you know, there's no hope or, you know, there's nothing out there for me. And I, I really want to stress, um, and I know that throughout the talk today we've been discussing, you know, bringing in your medical team and that communication with your doctor. I really want to stress talking with your doctor about that simply because you may not be eligible for one particular type of immunotherapy doesn't mean that there's not treatment out there. Um, you know, it doesn't, not, it doesn't mean that there's not other modalities that you could try. So really, really encourage people, um, if they're feeling that way, to speak to the medical team about it uh, and see what else is available for them. And, of course, just looking to the future. I mean, it's very exciting. Um, and, again, just brings a lot of hope uh, for what's out there. Awesome. Thank you. Um, well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing uh, program today, I have to say. I want to thank all of you. I want to thank all of our participants who asked questions both on the phone online, which really helped to expand the program and also um, allowed all of you to kind of really um, let us know what some of your concerns and questions are. Now, our hope is that at the end of today's program, you'll go back to treating healthcare teams with more information and that you'll be able to ask questions in a more informative way. Um, and um, 
and you have this information now at your fingertips. You will, at the end of today's program, receive um, an evaluation electronically. It will ask you to complete that, and it gives you a chance also to suggest topics you'd like us to do in the future. Now, this is part one of a two-part series, so stay tuned. There is a part two, and it's on May 2nd, so it's next week, and um, actually we um, are next Wednesday, and so um, we'll look forward. Many of you have signed up for that program as well. Um, also, some of you still have questions. You're in queue, and so you have questions that you wanted to ask. We didn't have a chance to have those questions answered. So I do want to give you some options for getting your questions answered. Um, the first option we always give is, of course, your healthcare team. They know you best, and they know all the details about your situation, so they're very good to ask. But some of you like to get information at other sources as well. So I always recommend the National Cancer Institute. They have an 800 number. And they also have a website, and actually both of which are very informative in terms of getting information. They're, for those of you in the U.S. and both internationally as well, um, their website has a live chat feature, so you can post your question, and then their information specialist will really give you all the information they have to address your question. So that's, that's a wonderful resource for all of you to have. You'll also be receiving all the other resources that we have in today's program so that you can, there's so many other organizations out there that can really assist you with this. Um, certainly the American Society of Clinical Oncology has a lot of information about this topic as well, both um, on their website and um, on their, um, uh, there you can call them as well. And also, if those of you who would like to pursue some supportive services in cancer care, either financial assistance or practical help or counseling services or joining a support group, do contact us at Cancer Care. So most importantly, as we conclude today, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of this community of support, and we're all here to help you. And um, we look forward to hearing from you and also um, to your participating in future programs and also taking advantage of the services of Cancer Care. Um, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all very much for your participation. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.